This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Kanda Mason's Brown Rice Hour, a podcast that quilts together a fabric of connection between land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Discover a connection that engages with the most inspiring and cutting-edge thought leaders today, pointing toward our collective healing and liberation. If you are interested in supporting the Brown Rice Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Kanda. Hello, everyone. I am happy to be back with you today. I want to welcome you to the Brown Rice Hour, where we have conversations at the intersection of land, race, money, culture, and spirit. My name is Conda Mason, and I am the host of the Brown Rice Hour. So today' podcast, today's podcast is going to take a different form than I usually do. Um, instead of interviewing one person, which usually you would see somebody that I'm interviewing right now, um, if you're watching on video, I will be interviewing three amazing individuals that I have had the pleasure of working with very closely on the Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certificate Program, which the uh, initials are MMTCP. So you may hear us talk about MMTCP. It is the Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certificate Program, which is a, an online um, two-year international training that has um, been, which is the heart child of Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. And the four of us work for that program. And it is currently the program in its third cohort um, so, and it's a two-year program. So we are right now just finishing as the taping of this podcast, we are finishing up the first year of the third cohort. And so I work on this program, um, with, um, Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock and a host of other people, um, as a mentor and as a mentor leader, um, as well as one of the co-creators of the DEIA program, the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility program. And so I'm one of the co-creators. And the other incredible beings that you're going to meet today or that we're going to talk with today are my, my posse that has helped to steward 
support this program, which is a very innovative program for a mindfulness um, teacher training. And um, they are, we are what I consider the dream team. (laughs) And so I think that it's really important. I believe that this, this program, the the DEIA program that we have all co-created is an extremely important program. It is, I believe, the future of what needs to happen in mindfulness teachers training and um, and in the in the mindfulness community. Period. Um, we will be talking from the point of view of training teachers, but everything we are saying translates over to just us as human beings, right? And so we are um, really. Um, working diligently on this program, it's been quite a joy and it's been a huge challenge. And so this group of teachers that you will meet today will share our highs and our lows and explain to why, no matter how difficult, this is what we must do in order to have a really diverse um, and to just work into the future, the future that we all want. I hope that we all want. So pay attention. Um, If you start to feel a little bit of discomfort, that's great. That is where we learn in that discomfort zone, I think. And just stay open. And um, I'm going to uh, bring them on right now. They are in my waiting room. So here they come. And here we are. So I am very pleased to introduce what I think of as the dream team. Um, and in our DEIA world, in mindfulness world. And I'm going to begin um, by introducing, we have Kate Johnson, we have Crystal Johnson. Oh, I just realized that. And Don Haney. (laughs) Duh, I never noticed that before. Um, (laughs) And so I'll begin by introducing Kate. And Kate is, um, is a Buddhist meditation teacher and writer who loves integrating embodiment, justice, and the practice of wise relationship in all of her work. She is the author of a book called Radical Friendship, Seven Ways to Love Yourself and Find Your People in an Unjust World, which is a wonderful book that I am currently reading. Thank you, Kate. Um, She has been a dedicated practitioner in the Western Insight Theravada Buddhist tradition since 2008. She's taught meditation and creative movement practices as social change methodologies in public schools, community health centers, activist organizations, performance collectors for over a decade, and was fully empowered as an independent Dharma teacher through Spirit Rock Meditation Center's four-year teacher training in 2020, where Kate was my Dharma sibling, and we completed that program together. Kate is also an utterly unprofessional dancer who holds a BFA in dance from the Alvin Ailey School, Fordham University. She has a master's in performance studies from NYU. Most recently, most profoundly, most ordinarily, Kate is a mom. These days, you can find her writing, teaching, and facilitating online and in her home city of Philadelphia, where she can be found in the hours exploring with her kids sipping tea with friends and looking for all manner of good trouble. Kate can be found at katejohnson.com. Thank you, Kate, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me here. Yay. I will now introduce Crystal. Crystal Johnson, PhD. So um, I will call her the doctor. (laughs) 
Krista is a retired clinical psychologist and a community teacher at East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, California, which we lovingly called EBMC, which you may hear that acronym um, as we go, where she also serves on the leadership sangha, which is the board, and is a member of the Radical Inclusivity Committee at EBMC. Her teaching is focused on supporting white people in Buddhist sanghas, wider mindfulness community to wake up to whiteness and white supremacy culture and move toward action to work for racial justice. Crystal has designed and co-designed and taught and co-taught numerous classes, such as Unpacking Whiteness, White and Awakening in Sangha, and White and Awakening Together, The Journey to Connection. In Dharma communities, including the East Bay Meditation Center, Spirit Rock, the San Francisco Zen Center, and the Soto Zen Buddhist Association. Her most recent course is Many Communities, One Sangha, Exploring the Reality of Equity and Inclusion. She collaborated with Rhonda Misham Ikeda to invite white-dominated sanghas to identify the internal barriers they face and create community spaces that provide safety, dignity, and belonging to as diverse a group of people as possible. I love that with Rhonda and Musham. Crystal also offers consultation to individuals and organizations seeking to disrupt the practices of white supremacy culture and support change toward racial equity. I repeat, she offers consultations. So you'll know how to get in touch with her. <laughs> that is Kate. That is, that is, I'm sorry. That is Crystal Johnson, a doctor. The doctor is in. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. So glad to be with you, Kanda. Yes, yes. You can say, I love these people. All right. And last but not least is Don Haney. Now, Don is a teacher, coach, and consultant committed to helping communities and organizations learn how to navigate change while attending to dynamics of identity and power. They braid together wisdom from Buddhism, social justice, and psychology traditions, and alchemize this with their own experiences as a white, fat, queer, chronically ill, non-binary femme to support individual and community change through social movements from migrant justice to fat liberation. A Dharma student since 2003, she is a graduate of Spirit Rocks Community Dharma Leadership Program, we did that together. That was lovely. And a community We all teacher. did that together. We all did. That's right. We all did. Oh, my God. Okay, we have to talk about that. <laughs> and because she's a community teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center and the Alphabet Sangha. They continue to teach on white anti-racism, feminism, disability justice, leadership, and liberation, drawing on their role as the former co-director of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship to share wisdom at the intersection of Buddhism and social justice. Don is online at donhaney.net. Welcome, Don. Good to be here with you all. Thanks, Kanda. Oh my God. I am so excited to have this. I've been waiting for this moment to <laughs> appear. That's right. We all did the CDL5 together. Um, we were, wow, that's great. I've forgotten about that. So, um, wow. I am really happy to introduce, I, I have given, before you all came on, I've given a little bit of background as to 
what is happening here, that there is a program called the MMTCP program that uh, Tara, Brock, and Jack Cornfield have created, and that we are um, part of making a change to that program. And that is by in cohort three, that where we are now, the program's in its third iteration, that we've created a program, the DEIA program, diversity equity and inclusion and accessibility to help make that program um, to serve, to serve the needs that are that are really needed. Um, and so we put together this incredible um, team, the four of us, and it started out with Kitsi. Kitsi Shon was uh, a part of it originally and did some of the, did the videos with, with um, Crystal. And so this is also a hail to Christy, who I'm uh, uh, Kitsi, sorry, who is an incredible teacher as well in the Dharma and in um, white um, justice and white supremacy and, and white anti and anti racism. So I want to begin with um, I'm going to start with first, like what is the differences when we have DEIA diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. I, let's start from the beginning. People who are listening may not know what is the difference between diversity, equity, and inclusion. Accessibility is a little bit easier to understand. We could talk about that, but there's a nuance between diversity, equity, and inclusion. Who would like to give us a little bit of background on what what's how you define those differences? Well, I can give it a whirl, and then. <laughs> Others can correct me. And I think simply like diversity is that you have a mix of people, like of different backgrounds who are present. Right. Equity is that the um, sort of power and resources, you know, in the community are shared in a way that benefits everyone. And then I think inclusion has to do with safety, safety, dignity, and belonging. So not only are people there, not only do they have access to the resources, but they feel like they belong, you know, that, that who they are is welcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how I would say it. Yeah. And, um, and I'm going to, we're just going to have a conversation um, because I actually don't like those terms. <laughs> you know, we use them because that's what we have. But um, I really take offense to um, the word inclusion, particularly. And I do because if for me, it is still centering, it's centering whiteness. And it is saying, here's the standard and we will include you into our party. Mm -hmm. And that's what it feels like for me. It does not take into, um, I mean, that's, that's how I, whenever I hear the word inclusion, it just feels like I don't want to be included. I am also the standard, you know? And so I just want to say that diversity, I'm sick of that word too. And I mean, there's so much, right? <laughs> I mean, tell me what you all think about those, those words. What is, how do they feel to you? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, um, I had a moment when you said, what do these mean? I was like, what do they mean anymore? <laughs> you know, like, and I think that that, um, you know, that happens with language where, um, you know, we use terms um, and they start to get almost like stretched out of their, their, their meaning. Um, I don't, you know, I agree with you. Like I, I, um, inclusion without equity is like, um, 
uh, not desirable <laughs> to say the least. You know what I mean? Um, that, uh, if, if I, if we're inviting, um, people of, um, yeah, people of color, um, people from like a marginalized group in society to be a part of a mainstream space, but we're not, um, we're, we're not, wanting them to fundamentally shift the culture and the practices of that space. And we're not wanting to shift this, the pra- culture and practices of that space to make, make it more, um, more equitable and allow people to feel like be, be who we are, you know, wherever we are, then, um, yeah, then it's, it's going to be awful. and It's not going to work actually. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, I know that, in my experience sharing with people, I mean, in the context of this program that we were going to be doing a DEIA training, um, I realized just how many different ideas people have of what that, what that means. And I think that that, in part, that's because there's so many different ways to do that kind of training. Um, uh, I really love what we did. And I also know that, um, uh, for many people, when they got into our training, um, they were able to really relax, but up until the point where the the first module began, there was so much resistance, I think in part because, yeah, like DEIA, people think it's going to be boring. I'm going to be shamed. Um, right. I'm going to find out that I'm not okay. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, or I'm going to have to like learn a bunch of stuff that I already know. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, I think, I think, <laughs> I think that, I think can mean a lot of different things. Um, and uh, not all of them are, um, I mean, I, I was going to say not all of them are, are valuable. Um, and I don't want to like, I mean, of course I think our training was awesome. I didn't want to put down people's trainings. I think what I mean by that is like, um, not all of them invite, um, a deep reflection, um, on our own identity and social location and lived experience. Um, some of them are just like spewing a bunch of like data or um, like facts on top of what has often been tremendous harm. Um, and so, you know, part of what I'm interested in is like, not only how do we like learn you know, what not to say in order to defend people, but how do we heal? You know, how do we heal ourselves? How do we heal our relationships? Um, yeah. Excellent. I, 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 I love what you're saying. I'm, I'm wondering too, um, Dawn, you've been working in this space for so long and the work you've done at Buddhist Peace Fellowship is extraordinary. I, just extraordinary. The trainings, the pedagogy, the, I, I, it, it is, to me, I think that that work that you did there and whoever you, and all the many things that you've done in life have crafted you into this, this, um, so much wisdom, so much wisdom in, in this training and how to, how to hold space extraordinarily tell you the truth mm-hmm. i'm wondering about those words diversity equity inclusion and we'll i'm, I'm not missing disability cuz we'll come back to that as well but i'm just wondering do they work for you or do you have any thoughts about it yeah i i definitely did not want to be the person to answer the question <laughs> <laughs> my first response was like someone else answer that one because i don't use them Good. Good. Um, what do you use? Much, just to be honest. Yeah. Um, what do you use? Well, before I even try to answer that, because I'm like, I don't know what words I use. Okay. I don't have a like okay. 
Because at first I was going to try to like be cute and be like, oh, some people are using this term Jedi where they include justice. And then, but I feel like it just like, we keep trying to replace, we just keep adding words to the acronym to um, think that we can find the replacement that solves the underlying problem (laughs) of centering whiteness. But the replacing of the words doesn't solve the underlying problem. Mm-mm. You have to actually like, like changing the language doesn't solve the underlying problem. You have to actually change the, like how you're approaching it. And so I think that's where in, in doing the work that we're doing, I haven't stressed that much about us using the DEIA language is also true because it, it felt like given the context that we were in, yeah. Of, of a program that had gone through a couple of co- cohorts and not necessarily done a lot of, of work thinking about race and thinking about power. It was the language that made sense for this right. context to be introducing mm-hmm. this conversation at all. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it also felt true to me to like not stress that much about it and not be like, we need the right language yeah. No, we need to like introduce. Yeah. We need to like help people like get into this conversation. That's the the phase of work that we're in here at MMTCP. So I feel like in a place like Buddhist Peace Fellowship, we were probably using words like justice and liberation and um Reparations. <laughs> Reparations. I know, Kate, like you were there also, so you might have some thoughts. Right, on you're that. on the board, right, Kate? Um, no, I was on the board. I did, um, I for a while I worked um, with Dawn actually doing um, online programming for BPF um, and then oh, okay. uh, facilitating some of the Black Bill B right. um, gatherings. All right, right, right. Yeah, so we were just kind of in a different language set. Yeah, this language just doesn't work. I mean, I agree. I accepted it because there were bigger fish to fry. Like, Mm -hmm. let's just get it out the door. We did add accessibility. So I do want to say that because Mm -hmm. accessibility wasn't a part of it originally. And I think, Kate, was that you? I'm I'm not sure. But there was the addition of accessibility, which is important, right? Which is about access. Those who who have less access, whether it's physical or emotional Mm -hmm. access, that, that, um, and for us to center the um the training around that kind of awareness as well accessibility and um yeah i every time i say dia i'm going against a grain inside me i hear it and i think you know let's just just say it just say it it's okay and i really and you're right it's like there's no words to it's like it's bigger than a word it's bigger than, it's how do you so then but then you have to speak right? We have to talk to each other and communicate language. And I haven't been able to figure it out, honestly. You know, um, a few years ago, I was, um, I was working my book and I, um, went to a talk in in New York with Zenju Earthland Manual. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I just read, read her book. Um, which one? The one with the beautiful sculpture on the front. Um, Way of tenderness. The way of tenderness. Thank you. And um, uh, you know, was just like deeply moved by it. And so I asked her because I was I was really having a lot of anxiety writing about um race and racial justice and um just like 
had this, um, both the like white, well-meaning liberals who were going to get deeply offended mafia in my head. And then the other like inner critic was like the social justice mafia that was going to say I was not woke enough because when I had written the book was like six months before it was published. And there was a word I used that was like cool then that was like no longer okay. So it's just like battling a lot of these, you know, internal. You tell us the word. (laughs) I didn't know. I mean, I had no idea. Right. But it's like the language is always changing. And so like, you know, we could be one way, one week, like, I mean, not by the week, but I, I think this really happened with the word ally, right? Where it used to be oh, like, word. oh, ally is a good thing to be. And now it's like, no, we're done with ally. Ally is is dead. Ally is has never been For good. good reason, for good reason. Um, yeah. But anyway, this was like, like a lot of concern, probably too much concern about uh, what others were going to think um, and, yeah. and worry that they would not be able to see through the um, yeah. the language to the heart of what I was trying to say. And I asked her a question about that. I was like, how, do you, how did you how did you do it? Like in an internal level, how did you um, get up the courage to, to talk about waking up through race, class, and gender um, in a book, you know, um, that couldn't be changed that for all the world to see? And then also, um, how did you write in a way where people could really hear you? And mm. she said, oh, I just made up, you know, language for what I want to talk about. <laughs> she said, like with the... Um, She's like, I didn't use affinity groups. I used I, I, I used cultural sanctuaries. I decided we'd call them cultural sanctuaries because I knew that when people hurt affinity group, they think they know what I'm there that what I'm talking about, and I and they don't. Um, and she said, then it was so interesting to see other people start to pick that up and call them cultural sanctuaries. And it just made me mm. think about the like function of you know poetic language in this mm. domain. Just make it up. Mm-hmm. I, what if we did that? I love that idea of just making it up. <laughs> if Zinja could do it, we could do it. Wow. That we could cool. ask her to make it up for yeah. us. <laughs> she, exactly. she probably have really great language. <laughs> no, I, I this is kind of a tangent. I'm gonna I'm not gonna go there. Okay. This is a that's another um that's another podcast. But I have to say that language and how important language is, mm-hmm. right? And particularly as as Black folks haven't been called out of our language, out of our name, you know, hey, girl, boy, never given, you know, the decency of a name, you know. And I am in a I'm 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 in this very interesting space with uh, my another group of people that I'm working with that. Right now. As you know, and I don't think I did. I didn't put my pronouns on here, and I should have. I will do that as I speak. Um, We have this tradition now. Let me put my pronoun. (laughs) Um, I'm putting our pronouns, right? And this is some older, as in, in their 50s above, 60s above, Black women who are really pushing back on that, on having to, being asked, because they grew up in an era, and they're actually in their 60s and older, grew up in an era where them and their mothers are from the South were called out of their name, like she, hey, her, hey. And they're like, my name is blah, blah, blah. I only go by that. And it's a very interesting little culture clash that I'm in right now with the youngers and the elders that are having this conversation. So that, like I said, that's another podcast, 
but I'd love to get um, your all's feedback at the end of this on on what what that is. I'll tell you more about it. But language. But the point is, is that language is important. Language is important, and we have been using. So let's just we'll continue with the sake of of of, of clarity and ease with diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And we all know that we don't like it, those words, but we will <laughs> use them from here out. So I'm glad that, so, so, so this, so I guess I want to start with about um, what we, what we did really. I just gave a brief um, introduction of um, the fact that there was this training um, and I'll just say it again, that there was a, um, a, a training, a teacher training that Jack and Tara put together that has been really profound and wonderful training. And, and, this was my second year working in working in Kate too, um, and um, the second cohort rather, and all kinds of issues. There's a lot of people in the training, a lot of students and mentors, and a lot of things came up racially that were, um, you know, microaggressions. There was a lot of a lot of harm when people get together. It's just racial harm. This is the story. This is the story, and it can kept happening and it was clear that there needed to be a component that was a, a thoughtful component being created so that the next cohort would have this entire whole parallel track along with the curriculum, the mindfulness curriculum. There's a parallel track of six months of diversity DEIA training. And, and it we made it up. And we made it up. We co-created that that track. Um, Kate and I did the track for BIPOC, which is Black and Indigenous and, and People of Color, the acronym BIPOC. And um, and Crystal and Kitsy, who's not with us, did the the white track. And Dawn came in um, after Kitsy left and has has done a hell of a job supporting the team and being a part of a, of the whole thing. So. That is what we did. And I have to say that um, it was quite a lift. And I'm curious, I, I can, I can, let me just explain a little bit to the people what the overview is that, um, so again, these were for teachers. So as I said earlier, um, everything that we're saying it was specifically for new teachers, but it translates to your life no matter what you're doing and who you are. But in this overview, I'll give you a couple of the sessions. That were, There were six sessions. I'm going to name all six sessions. So session one was there. So there was the there was the BIPOC video and there was the white video and by and everybody could see each other's videos. Um, but the BIPOC saw the BIPOC and the white saw the white and you could cross over and see each other. So in the by so there was always every session had two videos. The BIPOC video in session one was how did we become people of color? It explored that. And it was for on the white video, it was the invention of whiteness. That was the name of it. It was the invention of whiteness. Session two, we both did the twin dynamics of race-based oppression and white supremacy. Session three, the BIPOC one was BIPOC solidarity, working with power dynamics. And the white one was called The Challenge of Being a Good White Person. Session four um, on the BIPOC site was resourcing ourselves, how to deal with racial microaggressions, bias, and racism as a BIPOC teacher. And on the white side is what to do when you are 
called out. Session five was teaching on the BIPOC, teaching mindfulness while BIPOC, a panel discussion. And that was a panel discussion where we invited three teachers, um, Anishka, um, um, Fernando Paul, um, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, and uh, Gomez. I'm sorry, what's your first name? Maricela. Maricela. Maricela Gomez. Thank you. And, and then on the whites, session five was calling other white people in. First one was what you do when you're called out. And this was calling other white people in. And our last session um, for the BIPOC was centering color and culture in the mindfulness classroom. And on the white section, it was unpacking white supremacy culture and holding space for a diverse community. So that's what we did. And we did videos and people watched the videos and they had homerooms and they talked about it. I'm curious um, when I look back over all of that, um, Crystal, how was that for you and making the videos that you and, 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 and figuring out the themes of what if you had six chances <laughs> to teach, how did you choose those six? And just what was your process in that? given as much the breadth of knowledge that you have? So the um, the course actually started out as a course at East Bay Meditation Center called White and Awakening in Sangha. And Don was actually part of the early teaching team of the class. And we offered it, I think, six times and got a good sense of kind of what the learning needs of white people are mm -hmm. and kind of how to teach it in an accessible way, but also how to teach it in a way that um, motivated people to like take action, right? Because, um, you know, we're not just trying to inform people, right? Okay. There is systemic racism. We're trying to like convey that, you know, you've been raised up in this process. You have been created as a white person and you have been taught to behave in ways that are quite harmful to others without necessarily you realizing. Mm -hmm. And so waking up to that, is painful. So you have to be prepared to realize, oh, it's not like they told me it was. And to realize, oh, I am, you know, not aware of these ways that I'm harming and I need to be aware. Um, and so then once you realize that it's okay, so how do I move into action? Like, what do I do differently? You know, because it's almost a joke now, oh, white people, you know, black people get killed and white people form another book group. You know, and like you need the book groups, okay? Because <laughs> like, you know, we need time in white groups to talk about whiteness, our relationship to whiteness, um, you know, the guilt and shame that comes up that we need to kind of move through, all those things. But ultimately, if our hearts have really changed, our behavior will change. And so what what are the behaviors? What are the actions? What are the ways that we can move differently in the world? Because I, I feel like that's what's actually going to change things. You know, it's not just a problem. Racism is not a problem of information, right? Mm. <clears throat> not a problem of information. Yeah, it's like, you know, white people, like, you know, we learn about whiteness and white supremacy. Okay, so we know racism is there. But what what is so easy for us to miss is that I'm actually keeping it going. By enacting whiteness, by going along with the principles and practices of white supremacy culture, I, nice little me, nice little white girl me, I am actually keeping systemic racism going. And that's the thing 
that, um, you know, as white people, I think we really need to come to terms with. Like, it's not out there. It's inside of us, you know, because we've internalized what we've learned. And that's what we need to investigate and um, move beyond. Like, that, that, I think, is like the source of freedom for white people in doing this work. Like, there's some idea that, oh, well, you know, we have to give up all this stuff. It's like, one of the things I have to give up is like this isolation and separation, you know, from parts of myself and from communities of color. You know, there's this incredible separation when I like enact whiteness. Um, and I have to not myself, I have to n- not know a lot of things. You know, I have to ignore the harm that comes from what I'm doing. Yeah. And that separates me. That creates like a big, you know, kind of painful space that I just don't look at. Mm. I'm I'm interested in when I think that there are people who when they hear the words white supremacy, they're like, you know, they're getting all tight and right now. So yeah. loosen up everybody. And I'm <laughs> relax, 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 relax. We're gonna say it a lot. White supremacy, white supremacy, white supremacy. Get used to it. <laughs> but if you can if you can crystal explain, um I think people think of white supremacy as, you know, like, you know, the, the, the Ku Klux Klan and the hats and the, and yeah. the, all those crazy groups that exist today. Can you explain that is not that and what it really is? Yeah. So, so whiteness, sort of the creation of whiteness, it arose out of the period of European colonization, um, kind of starting in the 15th century when the Pope said, yes, everybody, if you're a Christian monarch, you can go out and take whatever land you want and kill whatever people you want, as long as it's in the name of God. And that's good, you know, and I'm sort of saying it that way. And some folks with Christian faith find that way of saying it offensive. And so, you know, I I, I don't mean to offend, but it is, it's, it's a Christian European uh, practice. It's a Christian European set of beliefs and principles and values that are still present in American culture and many other cultures in the world. And this is a culture where, um, you know, uh, whiteness is the superior color, where there's supposedly profound differences between white skinned people and other skinned people. You know, the individual is the super important, um, kind of unit of analysis, competition is important. You know, you get what you deserve. So if I work hard, I'll get ahead. So if there are other people who aren't getting ahead, it's because they're not working hard. You know, there are just a lot of ways of being, which I was raised to see as, you know, the way it is, which in fact are cultural practices. And so there's nothing wrong per se with white culture, with you know, this emphasis on the individual, on duty, on kind of unemotionality, on, you know, silence, you know, kind of not really getting very personal. It's when that is held as the only way to be, the best way to be, and that resources in a culture are assigned to people with those characteristics, with that skin color and that kind of behavior. And, you know, violence is used to enforce those practices and that hierarchy of privilege. So when we think of white supremacy culture, at the extreme, you know, it's white nationalism, right? At the extreme, it's, you know, we're going to like violently create a whites only space and, you know, get rid of everybody else. Um, But white supremacy culture in day-to-day life is in things like, 
how media portrays white people and how less often they portray, you know, successful, positive images of people of color. You know, it's in the ways that housing is still segregated in our cities and the housing that white people live in on average is better than the housing that people of color live in. And then if you just start, you know, kind of with education system, there are, there's discrimination in education, which leads to discrimination in employment, which leads to dramatic differences in wealth, which leads to dramatic differences in health. And, you know, it's this whole system of white supremacy culture where the people with skin like mine are actively favored through often violent processes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like as a, a nice white person, like I don't really want to be identified with these violent processes. And it's true that like I benefit from the operation of white supremacy culture in a material way. And so for me to really come to terms with that, it's not like I created it, you know, but if I live by it, then I'm kind of implicit. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm complicit, rather, complicit. But I'm complicit with the American genocide. I'm complicit with the practice of slavery that generated enormous wealth for white people in America that persists to this day, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's Ta-Nehisi Coates who has that great analogy. You know, he says, like, the, the um, people who don't like reparations, you know, it's kind of like I maxed out all my credit cards but then I cut them up and I'm surprised that people feel like I still owe them money. <laughs> you know, it's like all that wealth was created through exploitation. And it's like, you can't just like leave that be, you can't just say, Oh, well, let's just move forward. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. That was a very long answer to your question. No, but it's all good. It's such I, an important question because the terminology yeah. is disturbing yeah. until you really think about it. And yeah. And I think that that's really important because uh, honestly, I hear it all the time that, you know, particularly uh, like the people who are going to be watching this podcast who are white are probably more what I call the, the, the you know, the spiritual progressives types, right? And, and, and honestly may feel that they got this, this together, you know, I've got black friends and what have you. And, and I, I know, I know this stuff and, um, and when you say white supremacy culture, still it's it's like you know the stomach hurts, and and it's still this image of the extreme, and it's really important for people to understand that they every single American participates in that culture, my myself included. I'm wondering also, Don, if you have anything to add to what Crystal was saying, and then I'm gonna ask. You, I have a question for you, Kate. Well, I think what I wanted to say here is like. To me, this is why we are doing this work in mindfulness communities. Okay. Um, like, I mean, we're interested in mindfulness communities facing the racism that's in mindfulness communities. Like, that's part of it. Mm -hmm. But but part of it also is because mindfulness as a practice, for me, helps, like, helps take a look at, like, my own experiences in white supremacy culture. It's not just something out there. Mm -hmm. other people are doing is actually like how 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 it, how am i participating in it day by day mm -hmm. and that to me is part of the um incredible work at that is possible when you're actually put mindfulness practice um 
and apply that to facing uh, racism and white supremacy culture, I think it's actually what can help uh, it's helped some, you know, it helps decenter whiteness in a different way than just like studying it as an academic mm-hmm. exercise. Got you. Um, so it's that to me is like why it's really incredible to be trying to do this work, not just not just helping mindfulness students, but helping people who are training to be mindful, mindful teachers, mindfulness teachers. Mm-hmm. you know, close to 2,500 students across the world to be thinking about mindfulness and racism together. Like, yeah. how is this actually um, something that helps us change our mindsets and behaviors together? Mm. Yeah, that's right. I, I I think that the marriage of mindfulness and and this anti-racism work is is the perfect marriage and it's 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 um it's critical to me to for mindfulness to continue even moving any further it it, it, it's the racism because people don't want to think it's like well you know aren't we all cool because we do mindfulness you know you mean racism exists in the dharma and it's like "Uh uh-huh you know what kate I, I want to talk to you about something, but that just reminded me of that, that situation that you had that day when you were leaving from a retreat and somebody mistook who you were. Can you tell us of that example of like just one of the most blatant things that happened is racism in the Dharma, if was you don't mind. We you were in teacher training? It was, yeah, when we were, you were leaving, you're leaving yeah, from down from, Yeah, from oh down goodness. So I was um, walking up the hill um, to go to my dorm to remove my stuff um, at the end of our teacher training um, retreat. Uh, so kind of mentioned we did this four-year um, training to uh, be authorized as, as retreat teachers in the um, insight meditation tradition. And um as I was walking up, uh, there was a, um, appeared to be white man, um, yogi, uh, meditator coming down the hill, um, who had just finished, it it was packed up with his things, looked like he had just finished the meditation retreat. And he kind of walked up to me and his eyes were bright in the way that, you know, people can be after their first meditation retreat or, you know, and he was like, I just wanted to say thank you. And I was like, thank me. And he's like, yes, he's like for, you know, keeping the the meditation hall clean and for cleaning the dormitories, you know, after the retreat. And I was like, I was so, I, he, and I just like stopped and he said, isn't that what you're doing? You're here to kind of clean in between the retreats. And I said, no, I'm, I'm a, I'm a teacher. And he said, oh, what do you teach? And I said, meditation. (laughs) (laughs) And he just like, kind of like looked bewildered and walked away. But I was, um, it was so, it was such a, um, it's painful. It's funny now, but it was painful. It, 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 you know, I cried. It was, um, there's so much that I do. I realize to signal when I'm in meditation spaces that I belong there, um, from you know, carefully choosing my like neutral colored natural fabric clothing to, you know, like, you know, just all the, the you know, the, um, really being diligent about, um, you know, obviously being in practice, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a performative element of mindfulness There can be, you know, and there's a lot of pressure as someone who, um, 
uh, like doesn't appear to look close to what the mainstream idea of a mindfulness practitioner is, let alone a teacher, um, to like try to try to perform, you know, that um, kind of Buddhist mindful vibe. And I am reminded over and over again in these meditation spaces where, you know, sometimes I'm a practitioner, sometimes I'm actually there to teach that um, no matter what I do, you know, no matter how I signal, there will always be people who will um, only see me as there to um, serve their needs and to arrange the space for them and to make them feel good. Um, and they just can't imagine why I would be there other than to be of service to them. Um, and so that's the reality for like not only practitioners, but teachers, I think. And 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 it was something definitely in my mind as we were um, designing our track for the BIPOC teachers in training, you know, like how, how do we, um, pre- you know, how do we prepare ourselves to enter into spaces where we understand we may be harmed? How do we recover from that harm? How do we show up as loving presence um, for students who are coming from all different backgrounds and are, you know, not just some of them, some of them just barely awakening, you know, some of them really looking to um, work through with us some of what they're waking up to, um, in their own hearts and minds, which is like not a really appropriate (laughs) function of our role as teachers, you know? So there's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, that was informed, I think, by our own experiences, um, in the Dharma and Dharma communities, um, as well as what we've been hearing from, 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 um, fellow teachers and from from students about their experiences in these communities that wanted to um, wanted to offer some um, perspectives and practices that would be helpful. Yeah. Wow. You know, Kate, I I think about you know how in general as being just a black woman in America and the many things that I do intentionally that. I've been trained to do like when I go into a store, like now when you bring your own bags, you know, I make sure that people see this is my bag. I'm putting it in here. I'm not taking something out. I mean, I really do. I have this thing that I do. Mm-hmm. And so that you don't think that I'm stealing. And it's just this automatic thing. When I walk into a store, one of the things for me um, in the meditation hall as a student, because, you know, we all play the role of teacher and then student and, you know, back and forth. And as a student role, and the, I prefer to sit in the back. I like in the hall. I like being in the back, particularly I like going, I like going during winter where I could just like close myself down, hibernate in the back, get myself and I just like go in, right? That's, that's my thing. And it's always a room full of white folks. And because of that, I won't won't allow myself to sit in the back because I can't show up being in the back. I move forward where I don't really want to be, but I can't take the stigma of them thinking, oh yeah, she's supposed to be in the back. You know what I mean? Just stuff like that, that are the things that we overthink or that we have to look at that white folks don't have a clue that we do. And that's one of the ones for me that, um, and so what I often do if I'm on a long retreat, I start in the front, 
know, like, and then I work my way back to where I want to be. Like, you know, now I'm choosing to be back here, folks. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and that's kind of honestly what I'll do, you know, and I think about all the many things that show up in, um, as race and, 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 and racism in, in the Dharma world. Um, I, I don't know if you feel like doing a little bit of a teaching, Kate, but you did this wonderful um, piece in our videos on the four levels of race-based oppression. And if you can, if you remember what you did with that, or is that, if I'm putting you on the spot, it's okay, I can come back around. But the four levels of race-based oppression are really important for people to understand. And it's playing off of what, um, what Crystal said earlier and talking about systemic, the systemic nature in it not being the, you know, the white hats and, 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 and sheets. Um, but there are these four levels that people should be aware of. Are you up for um, a little bit of teaching? Yeah. Well, I am up and I'm also, maybe you all can help me out because um, okay. I'm <laughs> new mother tired and I don't have all my files like right at the front. Um, there are ways in which um white supremacy and race-based oppression are out there. And there are also ways in which that they're, they're like closer to in here. And our um, task as mindfulness teachers is really to be, and, and practitioners is really to be aware of them wherever they manifest. Um, and also mm-hmm. when we have a personal experience um, to be able to ask ourselves this question, you know, does this, does this experience have a systemic root? Mm. You know, or is it just, my anxiety or that I think this person's mad at me or, you know, what I mean? like, they, they, can I actually trace this experience that I'm having personally or interpersonally back to a, um, a, a societal structure that's, that's acting through, that's act, enacting itself through my, my personal experience this moment. So, um, I, I don't have examples like at the tip of my tongue, but I can say, you know, one, one of the levels of, um, uh, oppression, um, is, um, kind of cultural. And so, um, it's, a uh, um, the way in which, um, kind of what, what Krista was talking about, like white supremacy culture, um, gets enacted in certain, um, like cultural tendencies that are sanctioned as the norm or elevated as the ideal. Um, and, uh, not only do they privilege, um, light skin, um, white skin folks, but they also, um, become expressed in certain tendencies. Uh, like, um, often, uh, people reference the, um, the, uh, um, document it's by, uh, Tema Okun and Kenneth Jones, uh, elements of white supremacy culture. So things like perfectionism, um, sense of urgency, um, uh, worship of the written word, you know, and these things are mm. not, um, they're, they're present, um, in culture at large, but they're also present within, um, the culture of Western Buddhist and mindfulness spaces. And I think right. this is part of our work too, as teachers and practitioners, that not only do these cultural spaces have, um, you know, ex- exist within white supremacy culture, um, and, um, but they, and, and arguably, um, unintentionally propagate white supremacy culture worldwide, (laughs) but also, 
uh, I mean, if we're not careful, right? If we're not careful, mm-hmm. if we're if we're teaching and um, and writing and giving talks, kind of by default, the, the def- it will default towards white supremacy culture because that's what we were yep. um, we were acculturated to. Not only that, but the the tools of the practice have been themselves colonized in a, in a way, and so part of our 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 contemplation too can be like, how do we um, how do we use our wisdom eyes and ears and hearts, you know, like use our, use our, our wisest um, sensing when Mm -hmm. we relate with the tools of the Dharma as we're taught them to kind of um, sift out, you know, what's the heart of the Buddha's teachings and what's white supremacy and what's capitalism and what's patriarchy. Right. right, Um, And, and and so, um, uh, so that's kind of like the cultural level. Um, and then we have a, a level of institutional, um, uh, um, oppression, which has to do with the kind of laws and policies that are enacted within many of the domains that Crystal talked about earlier, you know, healthcare and the law and education systems, um, and, um, uh, housing, you know, um, the 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 legal and the policy that have the, the laws and the policies that have systematically advantaged particular groups and disadvantaged other groups, um, and then we have um, the level of institutional, or sorry, um, interpersonal yeah. oppression where it shows up um, in, for example, this experience with this um, this person that I had at the, the retreat, right? Where um, someone says something to me that's really harmful. Um, oftentimes folks that um, experience, I think most often people are aware of experiences of oppression at this interpersonal level, but they might not identify it as oppression. They identify mm-hmm. it as some kind of interpersonal issue. So it's um, that Kate is ang- an angry person and she doesn't like me as opposed to Kate um, experienced a microaggression from me and is being, uh, and now is being told that whatever she's feeling is her fault, <laughs> you know, like for example, right. Right. um, uh, or like, um, so yes, when, when folks are not attuned to the ways that, um, oppression operates and white supremacy operates, it often feels like it's an interpersonal issue. And mm-hmm. like, why can't we just be kind of cool as opposed to like, c- um, considering, you know, for the person in power, how is it that I might be, um, you know, enacting power or as Christmas is enacting my whiteness in a way that's making it impossible for me to this, for, for this person to connect with me in a safe way for them. Yeah. Um, and then the in- internalized piece, which I think we spent a good deal of time talking about in mm-hmm. our um, track that we designed for BIPOC teachers in training. Um, you know, what are the ways in which we become complicit um, in oppressing ourselves and sometimes in um, maintaining uh, white supremacy culture um, in ways that harm other folks of color? Uh, one of the big challenges, I think, in creating this track, you know, was that the, the I mean, not that there's not diversity within the um, group of people that uh, are, um, you know, experience white privilege in this world. And a lot of the, like, you know, meeting, um, emails and pushback that we got from white students was kind of like railing for this. Like, you're not recognizing our diversity. We're a diverse group of people. It's like, yes, we know that, you know, we know that in other, you know, ways that there, you may have nothing in common, but besides your white skin, you know, and that there's a common experience there that we're trying to unpack and point to in this, in this particular training. Um, 
and and very much so for BIPOC folks, you know, that we basically anyone who is not white <laughs> was invited to take the BIPOC track, which included, you know, black folks, indigenous people from all around the world, um, Asian people, Asian American people, um, Pacific Islanders, uh, um, folks from without from throughout like the um Latin American communities uh, and and geographies, um, some people from the Middle East, you know, of course, on um, the continent of Africa. Um, it was, uh, and and here in the U.S. too. So it was just a, a huge range of folks. Um, and there's different, you know, we de- depending on our geography, depending on our proximity to whiteness, we may have internalized. Um, uh, white supremacy differently. Um, we certainly did, you know? And so, um, I think part of the, so, so that was part of the challenge is just like the real diversity and the ways people experience, um, oppression based on, um, not only geography, but also some of the other characteristics that influence how they experience white supremacy. So, you know, for me, for example, like I, I experience white supremacy differently as a light-skinned person, a person who has a white parent, um, a thin person, an able-bodied person, um, a, a, uh, in this currently healthy person, um, like, uh, yeah, so those were some of the things that we were we were unpacking in the training is like, so all of us identify as BIPOC and also what are the ways in which we have, we, we also um, enact power structures and enact hierarchy based on our proximity to whiteness and other, um, other privileges in ways that, that um, you know, harm, har- we harm each other. Mm. Um, and this is a conversation that we can't have so easily when we're in mixed company. And so that was like a, a one important learning task for us as BIPOC folks. Um, I also know, and we talked about this a lot, Kanda, you know, and in designing the training that many people I've experienced teaching in-person retreats will attend a, a BIPOC sitting group for the first time when they're in a Buddhist space. These are people who have privileges, other kinds of privileges are like highly educated, have class privilege, um, are aware of those things and maybe feel like they don't mix race people, um, third culture folks, people, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why people haven't felt like they fit squarely in and belong in a BIPOC space and maybe tiptoe their way in for the first time when they're in a Buddhist or mindfulness space. And so we were also... um, you know, keeping in mind that while um, there are many people who may be, you know, identifying um, and have like done deep work around um, uh, healing from internalized white supremacy and other forms of oppression that a lot of people were kind of coming in and identifying for the first time. And that sometimes there can be some there's so much, there can be so much pain around that that people would rather not, you know, they're like, oh, please don't bring this up here. This is my sanctuary. You know, mm. I don't want, you know, mm. the um, there's a lot of internalized fear too around making white folks mad. So it's like, don't ruffle the boat. Like, these are my friends. If yeah. we bring this up, they're going to look at me differently. We're going to have tension and awkwardness, you know? Yeah. Um, and so really want to be tender around that because that's real. Yeah. And then yeah. also knowing for some of us, when, when someone who is in a seat of power names that white supremacy is operational in a space, we settle. Hmm. We settle. We can actually relax because we, there's not an elephant in the room that we have to dance around or pretend to hide. That we can say, "Yes, this is the first noble truth. This is how it is right now." Um, 
there's a tremendous amount of relief in that too yeah. for some of us. So I'll just, uh, you know, take yeah. a breath there. <laughs> you say. know, what you're pointing to is so true. And it's, um, and that's why trainings and, you know, as long as we're going around it, this is what we've been doing for 400 years, you know, going around the issue and not really going through and dealing. And as we do, on the other side is liberation. And that's what people don't get. They think that, like you said earlier, I think, Crystal, that people feel like they're going to have to lose something or give up something. Yeah, you're going to give up something. You're going to get rid of the chains. And it's really about, it's really, really, really about um, facing, being accepting, and, and, and dealing with, with the truth of, of the racial consciousness, the race consciousness in this country specifically, I'm talking, and it's the world. That was the other thing. Um, and so, you know, I, there's a couple of things I want to, I want to get to quickly. And one is that, um, there's this question always, and we had it a lot around why do you have affinity groups? Aren't we all just one? I mean, when it comes to mindfulness and Dharma, I mean, why are you having why are white people here and BIPOC people over there? Isn't this a theology about a oneness? And, and aren't you just making it worse and all those? I mean, boy, did we have that as a as a mainstay for about, you know, for many months. I'm going to read something that um, that our friend Ruth King wrote, um, who really has a very um beautiful um, practice around which what we're calling affinity groups, which Zinju called, what was it? She called it sacred. What did she call it? Cultural sanctuaries. Cultural sanctuaries. Okay. So um, I'm just going to read this quick paragraph um, with Ruth King, who's a mindfulness teacher, um, an incredible, brilliant woman who has a book called Mindful of Race that I hope everybody has. She says, in a racial affinity group, our work is intensely personal. We have the opportunity to share our experiences and histories, examine our impulses, reinterpret meaning, and see clearly our role in racial harming and healing. Racial separation into same race groups in this sense is not unwholesome. Rather, it brings us into clear intention and is a critical step in developing from the inside out racial intimacy, literacy, and skillfulness. Regardless of how you identify racially, no one is exempt from the need to intimately examine racial conditioning. This is no shift in consciousness around race, neither knowing or part nor healing without the grit that relating to each other makes possible. Therefore, I recommend racial affinity groups, which she calls RAG, as an ongoing forum for investigating and transforming our individual and collective racial conditioning. And so I just love what she's, she's very clear about how important it is. And, and we even had, um, there were, it was an interesting take on it. Mainly it's, it's usually white people saying, why are you separating us? I, you know, I want to be with, with the people of color, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, aren't, aren't you being racist? Um, and then there were people of color who were saying, when white people go by themselves, it's never been good for me. So I don't really like the fact that they are separating and doing their own thing. I'm being excluded and I want to know what's going on over there. So, you know, there's just so many doors into questioning it and all legitimate things to think about 
And it was something that I think um, is really important, even though we know the whole construct of race is as a construct. And, and we ran into that quite a bit, quite a bit. Yeah. All the people who fed into the cracks who we ended up yeah. calling third space. Is well, that what that's we what I it? wanted to. Yeah, yeah, that's what I want to bring up is like, yeah, it was like the 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 I think the third big voice of like this is wrong, don't make us choose right. came from right. a group of people right. who were like, you know, um some people who are mixed race, some people who were like, you know, had um grown up in one culture and then moved and kind of became <laughs> BIPOC or became white, you know, um from where they moved uh when they became adults. Um some people who are um, a part of the dominant culture where they live, but globally we can be considered um, a part of a um, marginalized or oppressed identity. And so, yeah, it was complex. Um, we did end up calling that space third, that, that group of people third space. And we did, um, we did um, create an affinity group for them outside of the training. We still asked them to choose one primary track, either BIPOC or white, but we did kind of in response to this group of people say, anyone can watch any any track that you like, but you're responsible for the learning tasks that are within the track that you primarily identify with. Um, right. Knowing that identity is imperfect. But I feel like it was really, I feel like that's, that's the space of like learning inquiry that I feel like I'm walking out with this training with and really wanting to know more about. Um, because, and I look back at some of the work that I, that Don and I did together with BPF. And I remember specifically this one retreat that we were doing where it was a block build B, you know, retreat for kind of spiritual activists and activists, active spiritual people. <laughs> and, um, and um, we decided to do, you know, we do doing a day around like racial justice. We went into different, what we called caucuses, I think then. And based on the specific identities of the people who were there, there were less than a hundred people there. We divided into groups. I think it was white folks, Asian, Asian American people, um, uh, black group. And then we had a uh, um, uh, Latinx and um, multi-lineage group that was um, just, it, that's kind of how the, for the people there, you know, everybody would identify in one of those spaces. And what I remember is sitting outside, I ended up going to the multi-lineage group um, in part because my my sweetie was facilitating and I, we were kind of like new dating. I wanted to like check out his facilitation skills, um, <laughs> which were excellent. We we're still together. Um, but we, um, I remember the Asian Asian American group ended up staying inside and then white folks and black folks I could see out on the lawn and we were sitting on the, on the um, picnic table. And I looked up at one point and the white folks had this like um, uh, these like chart paper and like post-its and they were like furiously making notes and like making charts and putting things up. Black folks were like in a circle um, singing and doing massages and the mixed people were just crying. We were just sobbing <laughs> and like oh, yeah. holding each other. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much pain here around not belonging, around being betwixt and between. And it's something that I often like, you know, I was struggled to even re-identify as a mixed race person because I fought so hard to be black. And oh, <laughs> like, wow. by the time I realized I could be black, I was like, fuck this. I was like, I'm like, I'm I, you know, I, I just, I want to be with black folks. And then it was like, you know, being black and mixed race and letting in the kind of pain and the, the, um, not only the pain, but what can be known from that identity space of being neither nor 
genuinely, not just that I don't want to identify because it's not convenient for my identity, but like that I, I, I have what I learned from Dawn to call meaningful contradictions in my identity that make mm. it difficult for me to identify in one way or the other. Um, that I feel like yeah. is a whole other body of work that I really, I, I know I'm just exploring for myself and mm. I really want to explore with others. Dawn, are you like, because you feel, feel a lot of those yeah. I, I feel like that was that was so much of my work here. And I, I feel like you all helped develop the, I mean, did such such work developing the curriculum. And then I was deep in student response on this question of where do I fit? Um, certainly we had a set of students who were just like, I don't want to face race. Don't don't make me. Um, but this this question of like, where do I fit? Where do I belong? And doing this work with um, students across 75 countries, um, just really shifted my understanding of how to support students. Like, even if we're like trying to develop a curriculum, we have to construct enough understanding of race. Even if we understand race is socially constructed, we had to construct enough understanding of race as like a white track and a BIPOC track that some folks would feel included in that and some folks would be like, there's just no possibility for me to fit in that. I just don't belong in that. And that that itself is like such a core wound Mm. for those folks that it was just like, that was like so much of the holding that I was doing and support I was doing for folks um, that just really like taught me a lot. Like as, as Kate was saying, to just really like, meet people of like, hey, I like you have a meaningful contradiction here of like where to where to turn and I see you in that and I support you in that. And like like I am gonna ask you to choose. Yeah. Um and I hear that that choice is hard. Um and um and I'm gonna hold you in that as a um like what th- that choice is like for this curriculum, not for your life, not for like who you are, right. like what you're going to do for, for the next few months here in this particular curriculum. Yeah. I see that you are, are bigger than that, mm. you are more than that. So that was definitely a huge part of the, just even like expanding our, our, our thinking and, and mm. framing on this. So I, I love that term, meaningful. the meaningful contradiction. That's, really beautiful and 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 I just want to say that you know like Don just said you you were the person who where all the emails came all the student um questions gripes uh joys because uh, it was joyful too um but more of not <laughs> when they when people contact you know they always contact with problems I think that overall there was more joy for sure but you know you get those the loud people speaking and you think oh that's everybody and it's just not that's not true but your um, tactfulness in answering those emails is like, I would not have been able to do it. I got to say, I, I, I wanted to just go over, and this is, we're going to have to come start getting to a close, but the DIA training, we had FAQs. We have FAQs, right? So they're frequently asked questions. And some of them, the first one is, do I actually have to do this? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, yeah. Yes, you do. Tired. Um, <laughs> And and I'm just going to read some of them. Why do you ask white people to meet with? And this came from the FAQs were based on the questions we were getting. Why do you ask white people to meet with other white people to do the training? 
Why do BIPOC need to meet in their own groups? Am I required to do this again? I identify as BIPOC, and it is very concerning to me that white people are meeting separately. I am BIPOC. Why do I need to participate in the DEI training? Where do I fit? I am in a required BIPOC affinity home group, and someone in my group presents as white. Can we ask them to leave? I don't want to participate in the required DEIA training. Can I still do the program? It seems U.S.-centric to focus on this. I don't think we have this problem in the country I live in. I think Those you do. are some of the major questions that came through that we had to answer. And I'm, I'm really curious, too, just to hear, Crystal, I want to hear your answer, too, especially that last one, because I'm, you know, the international group that thinks that this is a U.S.-centric issue. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I, uh, let me just say, though, that um, as Kate and Don were saying, I think one of our great areas of learning while we were doing this was just the kind of the wide range of experiences that people have. And one of the dimensions that I hadn't considered, but that now I realize is very important is, you know, that the like U.S. imperialism is kind of reproduced when we do this U.S.-centric program and then say, okay, and this applies to everybody, Mm. you know? And it's like, oh, wait a second. It applies, right? The dynamics of privilege and oppression are present really in every culture. Um, But what it looks like will be different because the construction of race is a social construction. It arises out of a particular history. And so while global whiteness shares a lot, you know, because of the the common origin of, um, you know, European colonization, et cetera. Um, that's not so true for the um, ethnic and class and gender conflicts um, that exist in many parts of the world, you know, where what we would see as race, you know, manifests really more as ethnicity, where there's a history whereby people of one ethnicity are oppressed by those of another ethnicity, and there is always the story, the story of, you know, why this peop- why this group of people is better, what the norms are, what the values are, all these kinds of things. What we want to do next time to improve it, of course, is to make those connections more explicit. Um, because, you know, the story of race in America is a very particular story. It's an American story. The story of race in, in Latin America also relates to European colonization in some ways, but it's also like a different history. You know, so we have students in this program who in Brazil are white. And if they come to America, they are people of color. Mm. So which track should they take? <laughs> you know? And what a, what a wild thing, you know, that race is constructed in that way. You know, so it's not a, a fixed or changing thing. Kind of it's, a, it's the story of a culture and why some people end up you know, higher in a hierarchy than other people do. Yeah. And I think that when I think about this, I always think about that it's around the experience. It's not about, you know, what race is like, what experience of, or what an experience of oppression in a certain way is yeah. what we're saying, you know, that that's the common denominator, the experience. And so it's tricky. I mean, so I really want to, uh, we've been going a long time and I can go on and on. I wish we should do part two. Are you all willing to do part two? Because we just oh, yeah. the surface. Yeah, are you up yeah, for that? Yeah. I think we should. And I, I think we should, um, because honestly, um, this has been challenging, this program. 
it's been very challenging. Like you said, you know, lots of people, international, how many countries, 2,500 students, mentors who also were mentoring and needing to be trained themselves. And we did. And just so many levels of, so many levels of not knowing, so many levels of we need to learn from and so many levels of harm. And, and so, but also I have to say that I had a wonderful, um, a wonderful kind of going away because uh, I'm Kate and I are actually leaving a certain part of the program right now. And um, there was one of the mentors mentioned just, they, they just told stories of, students who started out really reticent, did not want to do this, completely did not want to take this DEIA training. Why am I doing this? I thought this was supposed to be a spiritual and ended up transforming. And I've got, they told me the stories and it was so wonderful to hear. And one in particular who this person who is a guy, a white guy who really hated it, didn't want to do it, ended up getting softening, softening, softening through and understanding, oh, I didn't know this. And and at the end, there's something called a practicum that the students do. And actually, as his practicum, he's doing DEIA and mindfulness. And so those are the kinds of things that have happened. And so I personally feel that this has been an incredible opportunity to really marry what needs to be married through everything, through everything. Um, but for, for the mindfulness community, to really embrace and understand how racism exists in all of it, in all of it. And being proactive, accepting that truth and being proactive in, 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 in learning and, and bringing in, um, doing the, the good hard work that we're talking about is the only way through the only way through this, this elephant in the room that you were talking about, Kate. And so I just want to say that I'm really proud of the work that we've done together here. It has not been easy. I have learned from all of you. I Every time we get together, it's like, oh, no, not another. And then I'd hear and I'd learn from each of you and how you respond and how much heart you know, and wisdom that you all have. And um, I thank you as teaching me so much in this process. Um, I think that I want to thank also Tara and Jack for making this happen because they insisted that this has to happen. And for those people who said they don't want to do this program because of that, they said, well, I guess you won't be doing the program. And I am grateful that they are so committed and, and that they are hopefully leading, you know, this challenge and it's challenging, you know, it's hurtful, it's hard. It's all these things, microaggressions that I've experienced that have, you know, and there's just so many things and it's the work that we have to do. And I think if we're not experiencing issues, then we're not doing the work because it's a mess. We have messed this up so much as human beings, right? That, if there's no issues, you're bypassing. <laughs> if there's issues, you're you're dealing. And so it's just like, we got to clean it up. We've got to do this work, everybody. And so I'm really grateful for, um, for this program that uh, we have taken it on. 
we will be revising it. It'll get better and better. Um, I know. And I just want to say that it is incumbent upon this sector, particularly as we talk about liberation. You know, we talk about mindfulness as this path to liberation. And honestly, it's been um, a path to a lot of other things other than liberation. And so if we can, as Dharma, mindfulness practitioners, students, teachers, um, insist on whatever we're doing, that we're we're doing the deep work on this. Um, and until that happens, it'll we will make ourselves irrelevant, is what I, I see. That you know, there's some, there's that 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 hyper individualistic me, me, me liberation. And with, you know, my head in the sand, not looking at we, because it's the we liberation that really matters as far as I can see. So I just want to say that I want to thank you all for coming, for being a part of my podcast. I am so thrilled and um, I love you all so much. And I know that whoever's watching this podcast is, is loving you like I am. (laughs) And this was honestly our meetings once a week on Wednesdays was like the highlight of my week when I know I was going to see my sisters and um, <laughs> we were going to, you know, be real, just be real. So I just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for who you are and the work you've done in the world uh, to make and, and for serving the way that you do. Cause it's, it's, it's hard work and you continue to step up to the plate and to serve. So much love and blessings to each of you. I don't know if you all have a closing word, a closing sentence, a closing moment. Um, please let me hear you say something. Just for me, this has been such a dream team. And I feel as if I have really grown in my capacity to engage with white people around these really difficult issues. And um, yeah, y'all rock. <laughs> And how can people find you, Crystal? You have a website or? I don't actually. Um, you know, they can find me uh, through East Bay Meditation Center. There's a, a um, an email, white and awakening at eastbaymeditationcenter.org. Beautiful. Thank you for your work. What about you, Don? Well, I just, I, this definitely, I love you all. This is such a dream team and I definitely learned so much in our process. And I, I just like have been noticing all the overlapping ways that we have worked together. Like so many things that we have, you know, certainly our CDL five work together, but, but other things that we've done as well. And so part of me is like, well, what's going to come next? <laughs> This I don't feel like this is any kind of ending. No, not an ending. <laughs> this yeah. is like, okay, like here is a big uh development that we um really uh put some effort into and learned a lot from and um will will inform whatever comes next in the next configuration. So I'm excited about that. Yes. And, and where can people find you, Dawn? Uh, DawnHaney.net is probably a good place. Wonderful. Thank you. Kate Johnson. 
Yeah. I mean, just echoing the love, you know, like I, I also feel like I've learned so much. I also feel like, um, it, this you're fielding the um the challenging questions sometimes the resistance from like students from mentors like really um like um brought me to a little bit of an edge internally you know and so i i both want to say um just how grateful I am for the like mutual support and care that I found in this group, you know, when I didn't even realize I was getting a little crunchy and a little, you know, like you guys put lotion on my hurt feelings and I really appreciate that. Just kept me moisturized um, spiritually. And, um, and also, um, yeah, that I, I feel like I, um, grew in compassion, you know, in, in this process, um, really for, you know, um, saw some of my own areas of unconsciousness, um, and saw also, um, just places where I, I still had room to grow. And, um, and so I feel like the, um, yeah, I, I I would love to work with you all again at any any time, and I I also am feeling a lot of gratitude for the the students of the program, um, just their willingness to like sh- show up anyway and show up with their doubts and show up with their concerns and show up with their um, curiosity and show up, but just to be willing. Um, and I I um I know that we made mistakes, um, and so I I just appreciate their their grace and their willingness to take what is um, useful and what is, what is wise about what we offered and to, um, and to let us know where we had room to grow. Yeah. Beautiful. <sighs> all right. I have to let you all go for the moment off the podcast. Thank you for saying yes. Thank you for making this happen. Thank you for being in my life and, um, Continually being my companion, my 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 teachers, my friends. I love you all, and uh, we'll see you around the way. Blessings, everyone. Bye bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, 
build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.